right? So certain online spaces are just sort of rigidly, dogmatically controlled by the left. And what happens when you are in an enclave is you stop kind of paying attention to what actually works in the culture writ large, and you only play that enclave. So if you go on left Twitter, right? Left Twitter has got to be, it's the most delusional place you've ever been outside of like a mental institution, right? Uh, People on left Twitter genuinely think that they're winning. They look around at the world and they see total domination by a revanchist conservatist movement and they say to themselves, oh, well, why, you know, we're we're the tough guys over here. That diss track was brought to you by Freddie DeBoer, who is my guest for this episode. Stay tuned. There's much more where that came from. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to the latest installment of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm Adam Proctor, your host. This is part two of my installment this week. We're talking about left-wing strategy, tactics. Uh, Our last episode was uh, with Christian Parenti. If you have not checked that one out, go back, check it out. You're not going to want to miss it. This episode, in many ways, is kind of a standalone, but it also builds on a lot of the themes that we covered in last episode. So if you haven't seen that yet, go back and check it out. You're going to be much better off for it. But this time around, I'm talking to Freddie DeBoer. We're going to talk about campus politics and how to build real power. Hint, it doesn't happen on Twitter. Stay tuned. My interview with Freddie DeBoer that you're about to hear in a few moments is part two in a three-part series that I'm running this week. The first episode featured Christian Parenti. If you haven't heard that episode, I suggest that you go back and listen to it. It's already sparked a tremendous amount of controversy online, but fortunately, online means almost nothing in this world. Looking ahead, next week's episode is going to be part three of this series. We're going to have an interview with Angela Nagel. Angela has sort of made a name for herself as being the foremost expert on the alt-right. She has done what most of us would never want to do, which is spend way too much time on 4chan and those other places where these alt-right types like to lurk. Angela did the podcast circuit several months ago when Donald Trump was elected into office, and uh, Steve Bannon sort of ushered in the alt-right hegemony, at least for a time, until he totally fucked that up. In any case, I'm going to be talking to Angela about a slightly different topic, which is in the wake of the Berkeley skirmish, if you will call it. I want to know, you know, who are these people? Who are these people on the alt-right who are dressing up like Captain America or whatever? Are they actually brown shirts from 1930, like, you know, some of the people on woke Twitter would like us to believe? Or are they just anime Nazis who have no real social power? And if they are neo-Nazis, and if they are people that we should be fighting, how should we do that? Should we be throwing rocks in M80s at staged protests, or should we be doing something else? So that brings me to this week's interview with Freddie DeBoer. Freddie and I talk about a lot of topics, but primarily on our minds is the state of the left and how to build real power. So there's a little bit of a taste of what's to come in this episode and what's to come in the future as well. One last thing before we get to it. Here is your weekly reminder. 
I have a Patreon page. If you like what you're hearing, I've been working my ass off, people. Put out three episodes last week. I'm putting out three episodes this week. I've got a lot of really great content. And to be honest with you, I don't want to just sit on this stuff. I want to put it out as soon as I can because these are hot issues. And I think that my guests can make positive contributions. So if you like these podcasts, if you like what we're all about, if you want to support this movement, check out my Patreon page and donate. It's www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. That's www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. We have $3, $5, and $8 a month levels. You can support you know, the show. You can keep the, the stuff coming for free to the masses. Unlike many other podcasts, I don't like to go to, you know, an every other episode model where you have to pay uh, to receive 50% of the shows. Uh, My guests are amazing, and I want everybody to hear them. That's why I started doing this in the first place. So, if you've got the extra scratch, I beg you, please check out my Patreon page. Donate. All right, enough of that. Without further ado, here's my interview with Freddie DeBoer. demons. They're freaking interdimensional invaders, okay? I'll just say it. Make fun of me all you want on CNN or wherever, but everyone already innately knows this. These people are not freaking humans, okay? Calling me a white knight. I don't care what you call me. I'm right. And you're wrong. You are nothing but Alex Jones's bitch. He's your boss, and you've been drinking way too much of his Kool-Aid. Have you gone to his channel lately? All he talks about is football. Go to ESPN. Don't try to tell the world how it should work. Ah! Ah! We know we're under attack. We know it. We're breaking the conditioning. Ah! Ah! We're coming for you, globalists. Ah! Coming for you. Coming for you. We know what you're doing. I'm ah, sorry. Just get fired up when I think about what they're doing to us and how I want to resist them. And how easy they are to defeat. Excuse me. I think my testosterone's going up. This happens every time I start working out a lot again. Joining me today on the podcast is Freddie DeBoer. Freddie is an administrator at Brooklyn College in the City College of New York. Uh, He also runs a fantastic blog called ANOVA. It's an education research and policy blog, which is what Freddie recently completed his PhD in. How are you doing today, Freddie? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for joining us. So I brought you on the show because you have a really salient critique of uh, campus activism and the response by student radicals to uh, censor the activity of uh, certain student groups and, and the folks that they're bringing onto campus. We have uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, more recently Charles Murray, has re-entered the scene, zombified that he is. They dug his bones up and reanimated him and threw him back on the lecture circuit. So tell us your specific cr- critique of, of the kind of censorship that goes on on the left. Um, some have sort of called you a speech bro, which is a very sort of slanderous silly designation uh what's your rebuttal to that to that accusation i mean my rebuttal to that accusation is that it has no content right like that, right. that's the word bro is not an argument <laughs> uh that like you know i i happen to come from the old school in the sense that 
I think that uh, arguments have to be based on like evidence and reasoning. And I know that's not very sexy on the left right now, but um, it doesn't mean anything to say someone's a speech bro. I, uh, the tradition of the left is the tradition of civil liberties. You know, there's this, um, I mean, part of the problem with the way that uh, the left talks to itself right now is a lot of people just haven't done the reading, um, which I know makes me sound super old and like super like cranky. But um, the idea that the left has always been opposed to free speech, that the left has always been sort of skeptical of free speech anyway, uh, is, is kind of popular out there. It's completely untrue. Karl Marx was a uh, a free speech absolutist. Engels was a free speech absolutist. Rosa Luxemburg was a free speech absolutist. Uh, Trotsky uh, wrote a essay. Uh, he co-wrote an essay in which he asserted the artist's absolute right, uh, even to uh, to free artistic expression, even at those times when it was perceived to be counter-revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so this this constant insult that, you know, people who talk about free speech are liberals is just a historical nonsense. Um, I think, you know, if you wanted to break down my critique in a few ways, I think, I mean, just, just yes, sort of like in the, the basic sense, I believe in uh, the idea of, uh, of the, a right to free expression. Uh, I also think that people who try to censor others are operating from a position of weakness because their assumption is that their arguments can't win, right? Nice. When you when you say that you want to uh, shut somebody else down, what you're admitting is you don't have the tools, the rhetorical tools, the communicative tools in order to rebut what they're saying. Uh, another thing to, to point out is that the left does not control a lot. Right. We are losing uh, at most levels. I mean, it, certainly at every level of government and in most spaces, we have these strange idiosyncratic places where we have power like the college campus or the art world. But generally speaking, we do not have the sort of disciplinary power right now to be able to assume that we're going to be in charge in most spaces. So who are we more likely to be, the censors or the censored? It shows a complete lack of strategic thinking to say, oh, we're always going to be in a position to be telling other people what they get to say. And finally, I think one thing I, would, I always point out is, um, you know, the alt-right grew in the dark, right? This idea that if you pu- push the alt-right or whoever out of public spaces, that means that you're going to defeat them. Well, where do you think the alt-right came from? The alt-right didn't spring up from the Wall Street Journal at, uh, op-ed page, right? The, the, the alt-right didn't come from writing New York Times editorials uh, or even appearing on Fox News. The alt-right itself comes from uh, the darkest corners of Reddit. It comes from 4chan. It comes from these really nasty places on the Internet. And yet it was able to you know, lend its strength to a tr- the, the Trump victory and gain a lot of influence in there. And I just think it's just uh, – it, there's it's empirically wrong to say that forcing these – uh, movements out of the public spotlight weakens them. A perfect example is France. In France, there are very strict anti-Nazi laws. There's also a massive neo-Nazi problem, right? Because yeah. it turns out that you can't actually ban an idea. And particularly in the era of the internet, you are never, ever, ever actually going to effectively censor something. You might be able to push it out of your own enclaves, but the ideas will always be out there. Right. So the, 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 the critique that I've been sort of putting forth and it's very, it's been motivated by your general approach is this is one of the, what I'm calling the macho left. 
Mm. And it's this kind of uh, culture warrior mentality, whereas you rightly point out, too, that, you know, we need to squash racism. It's it's a very, uh, you know, like I said, it's a, it's a muscular picture of, of what, what the left is and what it ought to do in terms of uh, coming into confrontation, physically squashing and stamping out uh, racism as though it were a fire and we were, you know, uh, slapping blankets on it or whatever. And you rightly point to the fact that this comes from our weakness. Um, t- t- but talk to me a little bit about this sort of culture warrior left and, and where you think it came from, because we really are at a, a, a certain, a certain uh, inflection point, inflection point. Yes. Uh, in that process, because the left is really at loggerheads with itself right now, where I think, you know, you're seeing like the Bernie left, which is a, a working in and through the institutions uh, in order to gain mass power. But and yet the cultural warrior left is still kind of out there uh, asserting itself. What do you what do you make of that that wing? Um, sure. So I think that the, the the basic problem that underlies this is a general problem with the left, which is it is the enclave problem, which is that the contemporary left has arranged itself into certain places where it has sort of disproportionate power compared to its broader sort of national or international power, and in those spaces. Uh, it is devising ideas about the world that are not accurate about uh, sort of the distribution of power writ large. So college campuses are the classic example where you have a bunch of sort of idiosyncratic elements like lefty professors, a service mentality towards students, uh, the affluence of uh, elite colleges. Those things create an enclave on college campuses. You have things like the art world, right? So this Whitney biennial controversy where there's talk of burning, like literally burning a painting that people don't like. Um, And then also online, right? So certain online spaces are just sort of rigidly dogmatically controlled by the left. And what happens when you are in an enclave is you stop kind of paying attention to what actually works in the culture writ large, and you only play that enclave. So if you go on left Twitter, right, left Twitter has got to be – it's the most delusional place you've ever been outside of like (laughs) – a mental institution, right? Uh, pe- people on left Twitter genuinely think that they're winning. They look around at the world and they see total domination by a revanchist conservatist movement, and they say to themselves, "Oh well, why? You know, we we are we're the tough guys over here." So 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 in left Twitter, right? Like you get you get cachet, you get uh, likes, and you get retweets, and you build a reputation by being a sort of peacocking, you know, left you know, sort of. Like peacocking left-wing machismo plays really well there. The fact of the matter is that does nothing anywhere outside of that enclave, right? Like it doesn't actually result in any change. Nothing. Your neighbor doesn't know you have uh, uh, 45,000 uh, Twitter uh, followers on left Twitter, you know. They, right. But be- but because you can you, you can curate your own feed because you can really rigidly set the sort of the boundaries of your own discourse, there's no one ever to tell you that it's not working. Mm-hmm. Um and so, yeah, so like you get people who just think, oh, when I send this message out into the world, all I get is positive reinforcement, not realizing that it's so meaningless that no one bothers to sort of smack it down. Yeah, and I think you see, you see a lot of this on campus politics as well. And uh, like, like yourself, I've spent the last more or less 10 years on uh, college campuses as an academic. And, you know, I, I have to say I've, I've recently been disturbed. Uh, I, I got involved with some, uh, from some, some students who wanted to protest the recent uh, Trump's recent travel ban. And I, I met some really inspiring student activists and we staged a protest. 
But I have to say, like the established campus radicals that I encountered in that process, I mean, I just I found them to be really tone deaf in in, in terms of, of of what was necessary to build a movement. They had a certain kind of clout about themselves, and they seemed more, you know, unlike the new, say, the new uh, Muslim students who are coming to activism for the first time as a result of the ban. Uh, unlike those folks, the the campus activists had this really disproportionate sense of self importance. Do you see that starting in, on campus? Because I mean, let's be clear: a lot of these activists uh, do go to college, and that's where they sort of pick up some of these habits. I mean, one of the things that I think is important to say is I've attracted this reputation as like a critic of campus activists. Um, I'm just as likely to be praising campus activists. The reason I've attracted that that reputation is because I do it sometimes. Like. There's this strange uh, sense right now where uh, college students have been declared kind of completely outside of the normal processes of sort of critical debate. So, you know, in any kind of an activist situation, we should expect that there will be people who will look at the tactics that we've used to look at what we've accomplished and uh, sort of make discriminating uh judgments about how well we did and whether what we did was was smart or not that has been completely erased uh from the the campus uh uh, activist discussion where there's just this a bunch of people who are just rapidly intent on defending campus activists no matter how uh sort of wrong-headed what they're doing is you're supposed to pat them on the head and congratulate them for being you know uh aware and as i have mentioned in, in offline in a different context you know some of these people eventually what i've discovered is that some of these campus activists they grow up and if and if they never if they're never confronted with their own failures or contradictions they continue those into their 20s and 30s Right. So the thing is, is, um, look, I love a lot of campus activists, but I'm someone who has grown up around them my entire life. I mean, I grew up on a college campus famous for radical activism at Westland. Um, And one thing that tends to happen, it certainly doesn't happen to everyone, but uh, a lot of people go on from campus activism to lives uh, to lives of sort of bougie, affluent comforts and no longer have any kind of radical identity at all. Uh, and that is sort of gets to a fact of campus activism that's very rarely talked about, which is that private universities of the kind where campus activism is disproportionately found are overwhelmingly affluent spaces right. uh, and class matters. It's amazing to me that as a leftist, I constantly have to argue with people because I'm saying, hey, you know, the class background of these campus activists actually has a material impact on their organizing and on whether or not it's sustainable. You wouldn't think I'd have to do that. So, for example, Corey Robin, who, whose work I respect a, a great deal, I think he's written a lot of great things, but he has been totally resistant to the idea of doing like a class analysis of private liberal arts school uh, campus activists. I'll give you the perfect example. We mentioned Charles Murray in that fight. Middlebury, the the school where that happened, has more students from the top one percent of families than from the bottom sixty <laughs> percent. Jesus, wow. think about what that means, right? Yeah. Um, and in fact, uh, someone I know was sort of doing it out, and they said even if every Middlebury student from the bottom. Uh, uh, 25% of the, of the income distribution uh, from a family from the bottom 25% had attended that protest, they would still have had to bring along several hundred of their friends in order to reach its <laughs> members, right? And 
that matters, right? Again, like if anyone should be saying that the socioeconomic identity of people matter, it should be the left. Um, one of the things that this does is that you're dealing with people who are going to almost certainly go on to a certain level of career affluence. Now, that's okay, right? I got a job too. I'm sort of ensconced in this. We want people to be able to go on to have comfortable lives mm -hmm. and to be able to have living wages. But it, dis it ultimately distorts how you sort of engage when you know there's a period in your future when you're going to be sort of getting back onto the capitalist wheel that you're critiquing. Okay. And it also means that you tend to have a service mentality towards everything in your life. Um, I wrote a piece for the New York Times Magazine, which you can find easily with Google. It's called the uh, Why We Should Fear uh, University, Inc. Mm -hmm. One of the points that I made in that piece is that uh, student protesters are caught in like a corporate architecture of offense. And what that means is, you know, it used to be, if you go back to the earlier tradition of campus activists, which of course had its own problems, but if you look at how people sort of interacted back then, the campus administration was their enemy. It was the person they were fighting. Right. They had an adversarial relationship, right? Right. Now, the basic thing that campus activists do is they seek what they want from the administrators themselves. Right. right. Like in protest after protest, what they're actually ultimately asking is you give us what we want. And that's fundamentally different relationship to go out with your handout to the administrators and say, give us this is a fundamentally different relationship. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that the people who are running a lot of these campus activist groups are people who have been raised in a consumer sort of mindset coming from affluent backgrounds and expecting to be treated as a customer when that fundamentally ends up being in a position of weakness because you're still supplicating at this authority. So it seems, I mean, it, it's, and there's, there's this implicit relationship there when they, when they go to the administration with their hands out, there's almost always a liaison, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe right. we could talk a little bit about, this is the thing that, that I, I see that in my experience has defanged uh, legitimate grassroots bottom up protest movements on campus time and time again, is that from the starting in the early 1990s, this is kind of like the contradictions of success, right? Because uh, the the attempt to diversify college campuses in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s has led to the proliferation of these administrative bodies that are concerned with managing diversity and and uh, hearing grievances around discrimination and, and and creating you know some necessary safe spaces and that type of thing for students who are leaving home for the first time and exploring their identities and things like that, right? So that's that's the success aspect of it, but the contradiction comes in when those administrative faculty start becoming the liaison and, and it's almost like a pressure release valve mm. for discontent on campus. Uh, right. Maybe talk a little bit about that transformation and how that plays out. Well, sure. So, I mean, the thing is, is, you know, I, I think one thing that's really important to say is none of the critique is critique of students for not winning a lot, right? Because, you know, Adolph Reed says about left-wing activism, uh, it's like baseball. If you have a successful outcome a third of the time, they'll put you in the Hall of Fame, right? Like, like, a, like a hitter in baseball. Yeah. The point is not that the students are not getting what they want. The point is, is that uh, by creating this situation where they are fundamentally going to like a liaison, like you said, or going to an administrator, going to people where they're asking for them to sort of fulfill what they want, you're necessarily kind of um, – 
you're narrowing the boundaries of what activism can possibly ask for, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, there's a there's just like a demand. Obviously, is important. Like you want to have demands, but if your demands are fundamentally things that administrators can reasonably grant, there's a certain level of uh, shrinking of the the boundaries of what's possible. So look at like the campus uprising from a few years ago. Uh, I support some of the things that went down with that uh, those protests. At the time, I said, uh, you know, there's a very good chance this is going to peter out and we need to have systems in place in order to make it be sustainable. I was called a bad ally for saying that sort of thing. <laughs> no, no, no. This is going to last forever. We're just going to go up, up and away into uh, full communism. Yeah, that's that's the feeling, right? That's that's the feeling that you get when you're when you're in the moment and things are going good. Right. And the thing is, is, I mean, I, you know, not to, not to say I told you so, but I told you so, like everything <laughs> right. that I said was going to happen is going to happen. Right. But if you look, a lot of those victories are things like very affluent schools cutting checks, right? So you have a really deep pocketed universities offering, you know, saying, oh, we're going to spend a lot of money on diversity. They hire more administrators. They change the names of buildings. Right. The thing is, is all these things are things that college administrators are very comfortable doing. They're comfortable cutting checks. They're comfortable hiring administrators. They're comfortable changing names. Mm-hmm. But what the students had initially been protesting were very basic questions of like uh, the actual sort of socioeconomic and racial diversity of these institutions. And they got caught in the sort of sort of bureaucratic uh, swamp, right? Like they sort of, like they found themselves by appealing to administrators. Administrators can always sort of say, okay, well, you know, we're going to throw this to a committee. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, The the campus uprising got caught in a committee. Uh, Then winter, you know, Christmas break happened. Uh, Summer break happened. People graduate, which is yeah. part of why part of what makes campus activism really hard. Right, and the, the leaders are the ones who are typically the upperclassmen, right? The leaders will then right. graduate within twelve right. months or so, and then it, you know, then you have to start over again. And if you want to take a societal look at this, I mean, look, it's and it's a certainty that some of the people who were leaders in, say, Yale University's protest movement, which is one of the loudest ones went on to jobs at in finance or Silicon Valley or the rest of the sort of, you know, capitalist throng, right? Like that's, that's just the nature of these institutions. Right. And it's, I think it's, it's fair to both celebrate the times when they're doing protesting, but also say, you know, it's a fact that some of these kids are going to go on to jobs at Goldman Sachs and we shouldn't expect them to be a durable leadership of a left-wing movement. Right. I think you had a very similar experience to mine, it seems, um, five or six years ago, six or seven years ago, maybe perhaps, when oh, the left was at this strange, in this strange uh, crossroads where identity, a really shrieking, uh, awful, moralistic version of identity politics was dominant. Mm. There was a lot, the call out culture was really at its peak. And uh, so I had the unpleasant experiences, I'm sure you did, of being, you know, called out and uh, and and shrieked at by people who are now, like, say, working for IBM and and uh, and uh, Northrop Grumman, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I've lived through that. Excuse me. I know you've. I'm sure you've lived through that. And so folks like us see, you know, it, it, the campus uh, campus activist culture can kind of be a hothouse, right, in the moment. But what happens afterwards, right? I mean, it seems uh, that folks like us, you know, ha- have lived to see to see what comes next, and, it, and it's not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a um, one of the things that's happened is like 
I mean, look, I, I just I identify with like a left wing tradition that has uh, skeptical of like totalizing claims to knowledge and that thinks that uh, there really needs to be a really powerful kind of skeptic, sort of internal skepticism within movements. Otherwise, they become something really ugly. And I think that you need to have people who continue to sort of poke and prod and uh, pick away at your own sort of foundation just to find the weak points. And that's very unpopular right now. You know, um, whenever I write something sort of sort of saying, hey, here's some problems with current left organizing, I get accused of being a just asking questions guy. Like just asking questions is supposed to be like this really unpardonable sin. And it's like, what's the alternative to that? Never asking questions? Is that something that you want? Right. Like it's like. Yeah, like I, sometimes I ask questions. If if asking questions of a movement is has become forbidden, if that's been sort of been been sort of taken to be like this unforgivable sin, then like you know we're officially at sort of peak creepiness for this whole thing. Like I, I think asking questions is a good thing, and the way that any kind of sort of internally critical behaviors have been pathologized on the left is just a terrible mistake. This uh, is really in line with uh, Christian Parenti's activistism uh, mm-hmm. that he put forth in the early 2000s. It turned out to be a lot more true uh, than we thought. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to, to some extent, college campuses are shifting in, in positive directions. Uh, but like I said, you know, I think focusing on the contradictions of success are really important here. And mm-hmm. one thing I've noticed is that a lot of students are advocating and in some cases winning what amount to little social democratic enclaves on campuses. The problem is that these enclaves are surrounded by these neoliberal hellscapes. Right. (laughs) Right. And which, which, which is in a sense, uh, you know, producing this disconnect between some of the most radical folks in the nation being student activists and, and the rest of us. Right. Yeah. And in, in, in many cases, unfortunately, because of the kind of like anarcho, I don't know, God knows, postmodern, postcolonial, woke uh, bullshit that passes as political discourse on campuses. A lot of these same people who are arguing, hey, we need social democratic enclaves on campuses. We need better housing. We need uh, better health services. We need mental health services. We need other forms of social support. Those are the same people who are not out on the street marching with Bernie Sanders and arguing that we need left social democracy across the country. Those are the people saying that we need, you know, to focus on small community-based initiatives and I don't know, build gardens and stuff. I don't, you know, so maybe talk a little bit about that in growing disconnect between campuses and the broader political culture. Well, I mean, I I would just say, I mean, again, like I I have more sort of sympathy for campus, for college students than people think. I think that, um, you know, rather than, uh, unfortunately, rather than the current sort of trajectory being that leftists are helping to make woke liberals more class conscious, I think that liberals are making uh, class conscious lefties more and more woke. And I say woke not in the sense that obviously we need to be racially sensitive, sensitive to issues of sexism and gender, sensitive to uh, LGBTQ people. I mean, obviously those are all positive things. But when I say woke in this sense, I mean specifically a kind of like performative, pro forma, uh, sort of socially mandated oversensitivity, right? It's a, it's a way to like, so sort of there's a very competitive aspect to this. It's a virtue signaling. It's a building one's personal brand, right? So it's a branding sort of uh, enterprise. I don't know how anyone could look at 
like you know woke Twitter or, or or some certain college campuses and not come to the conclusion that a lot of this stuff is cynical, that it is um, a form of pandering, that it's done for professional reasons, that it's done for sort of social uh, uh, sort of to sort of win social plaudits from people. I mean, you can be one hundred percent committed to the causes of anti-racism and feminism and gay rights and trans rights and also look at the number of people who kind of cynically invoke this stuff in the spirit of competition, right, where they want to be seen as the most sort of open-minded person and have a problem with it, right? And, and, and look, college campuses are social spaces and they're social spaces by people who live in kind of rigid sort of popularity hierarchies and a lot of people who are in an insecure time in their lives and they're trying to sort of find themselves and define an identity. And so one of the things that happens is your identity becomes you are the last sort of moral human being on earth, right? And you have you have all these kids who at 19 and 20 years old have decided that they're the only moral arbiters in the entire universe. They're the hero, right? They're the hero right. scripted in the in the disaster narrative to save the day. Right. And, and what what really gets to you is you think of how many of those people are going to go on to be terrible Park Slope liberals who, you know, <laughs> who, who say not in bat, my backyard. Oh. You know, they're going to they're going to move to Echo Park in Los Angeles and own a oh. Prius, but, you know, oppose like opening a uh, a halfway house in their neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. yeah. What about my kids on their way to Montessori school or whatever? It right. Is, right. Know? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, it seems to me one of the most important parts of your critique that it's really constant there is the fact that, like, you know, not to say that students shouldn't organize. Uh, I've been a student activist, much like yourself. We, I think both of us spent the majority of our 20s as, uh, as bona fide student activists. We started organizations and, and, and so on. But it seems to me that you're, you're, you're argue, you're, you have a broader argument here in terms of, like, this is not what social power looks like. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit more about the limitations of, of, of power in that model and what real kind of structural social power uh, looks like and, and how we might get it. Sure. So I think that the, the, I mean, the first thing that anyone should recognize if they're going to get involved with left politics is because the left speaks for constituencies that are, de- are traditionally lacking in power, right? Because our whole thing is we are speaking for the marginalized and the powerless. Uh, that means that we necessarily uh, have to rely on people power, right? Number one, conservatism has an advantage in that all that they need to do to win is for things not to change, number one. Right. Number two, the, uh, you know, the rich and the powerful have money and power, right? Like that's, that's obvious. So we have no alternative but to try to convince a lot of people to come along to our side. And that's what power is. Power is mass organizing on the left. It is convincing a lot of people who might not ordinarily get on board with our movements to come out to our events, join our parties, and get on board with our program. What power is not, right, is the ability to, for example, get a movie kicked off your campus because you find it, you know, uh, somehow uh, transphobic or Islamophobic or racist or sexist, right? That movie continues to exist in the outside world. Uh, you haven't defeated its ideas. You simply advance the, uh, the picture of liberal college students, left college students as being antagonistic to other ideas. Crybabies and needing safe spaces and being little sensitive right. uh, flowers and that. Right. The, the, the way that the right, you know, slanders uh, uh, lefties. Dragging someone on Twitter is not power. 
right? Like, like get like like a bunch of people yelling at someone until they until they delete their account and get sad is not. Oh, power. but you get so many snaps though. Like all the snaps yeah. you get from that man, it feels so good. You know? That's not power, right? Um, <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I mean, I you would just look at like, you know, we talk about these censorship controversies. I do indeed think that it's a mistake for the left to try to keep Charles Murray from speaking on Middlebury's campus. But bear in mind, right? Charles Murray left from Middlebury's campus to go back to whatever fucking think tank is paying him a lot of money to be racist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. He he wanders the halls of power, right? Like Charles Murray is fine. The fact that you kicked him off of Middlebury's campus didn't do anything to him, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we are obsessing about Milo Yanniopoulos and who is a you know a celebrity, a mini conservative celebrity, a guy who controls almost no power. Jeff Sessions is the eternal attorney general of the United States. Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions. Uh, Jeff Sessions yeah. is a is yeah. a completely unrepentant Confederate conservative. He's a fucking he monster. Is, yeah. He is a Jesse Helms, Strom Thurmond, let's take it back to the old stars and bars kind of conservatives. Conservative, and he is the attorney general of the United States. He is the highest ranking. A uh, prosecutor and legal officer. No, 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 Freddie, country. I got it. We're going to punch him. That's what we're going to do. Well, that's the thing. And yeah, so we're going to punch Jeff Sessions and uh, right. we're going to punch the racist out of him. So one of the things, one of the claims that was made when defending the the uh, riots against Yanniopoulos in Berkeley was, oh, well, he was going to out uh, uh, undocumented students. And have them get picked up by, you know, he's going to out them and, and, and dox them so that they get picked up by immigration. But, of course, ICE is already picking people up, right? Yeah. Like, like you know, you can't punch an MRAP that's driven by uh, a government agency that is uh, sort of supported by bipartisan, by the way, consensus on yeah. enforcing the border, right? Yeah, you cannot. Like, there, there was a news story that came out uh, two or three weeks after the Milo uh, debacle. It was actually in, right in my backyard here in Alexandria, Virginia. It's outside of Washington, D.C. It was a national headline uh, because two undocumented men were picked up by ICE at 6.30 in the morning as they were walking across the street from their homeless shelter, right. which was a church. And, of course, uh, you know, DHS, was this was the controversy because they're not supposed to prey on uh, homeless shelters and those types of things. But their argument was, well, they walked across the street. And we picked them up on public uh, property. And so, you know, I mean, you know, look, I don't, I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to get a lot of shit for this. Um, I'm going to get a lot of shit for just having you on my show. You know how that goes. And that's fine. I'm prepared for it. But I, you know, I look, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, take this the wrong way. You know, I mean, I've shoved security guards and mass marches and protests and things like that. I'm not this like little mini pacifist just for the sake of pacifism, but, but, but it's just, it's a tactical and strategic question. Where, where were the, you know, anti-fascists at six thirty in the morning, you know, in Alexandria, Virginia, when ICE picked those two those two guys up. You know, they they weren't there, and they're not going to be there, and that's not power. Right. Well, number uh, one, like to say for all the the antifa out there, um, if you knew if people knew anything about the actual tradition of the antifa movement in Europe, right? The major antifa uh, uh, groups largely either disarmed or disbanded or changed their nature because what the what those groups arose in a time when there were actually like explicit uniformed fascist parties in europe that had taken over entire uh 
uh, towns and actually did roam around beating up marginalized people, right? When that condition changed, when there stopped being literally uniformed fascists from explicitly fascist parties, the major Antifa groups in Europe disbanded. Nobody knows that over here, though, because none of these people have done the fucking reading and they don't have any kind of historical sense about where this comes from. Everyone has the right to defend themselves when they need to physically defend themselves. I've always said that. And if you are in the position to physically defend someone who needs to be physically defended, you have the right and I would say the responsibility to do that. But look, Richard Spencer, as I've said, does not have as much power as like the – head postal worker in Wichita, Kansas, okay? Anybody who sits on this on the Board of Education in Texas has vastly more real political power than Richard Spencer. These, you know, the the question is not like some abstract moral principle. It's is this accomplishing anything? What are you getting out of your investment of of physical and personal and political resources. Asking that question does not make me a liberal. It makes me someone who wants to win. Mic drop. I was speechless there for a minute. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about winning. It's not about, uh, you know, puffing your ego. It's not about uh, how it doesn't matter. Nobody cares how you feel. Right. I mean, I, we, we have to say it. We have to say this out loud. It's insane. You know, but we, yeah. Nobody cares how good you feel leaving a protest. If that protest isn't part of a strategic view that's going to get you to the point where you can win and get get people free. <laughs> how do we save those homeless guys from getting picked up from ICE? Well, yeah, protest is part of that. Cause protest is part of starting a mass movement, and I love protest. Sure. But punching isn't going to do it. No, instead we build a mass movement that convinces a sufficient number of the people in this country, a sufficient number of the workers in this country, that it's in their own best interests to rally behind the, the, and support our immigrants. There's no, there's no shortcut. There's no alternative. If you want to save undocumented immigrants in this country, if you want to prevent them from being deported, from being jailed, from being assaulted, then you have to convince enough of your fellow Americans to get on board with that program. And that's not sexy. It doesn't sound cool. And there's no point where you get to sort of picture yourself as saving the world through righteous violence. But it has the advantage that it has the potential of actually working someday. Very little opportunities to peacock in an organizing meeting with uh, five people there, you know, in somebody's basement. Uh, but but, right. that, but that work is absolutely essential, and we can't uh, we can't skip over that. And it seems to me that it's it's easy to overestimate our 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 strategic uh, vision right now because there are people flooding into uh, Democratic Socialism of America. I think they just hit mm-hmm. twenty thousand members, which is fantastic. There there's probably three or four times that many people in their direct political orbit. You have you know Jacobin articles getting a hundred thousand clicks or more. You know Bernie Sanders has started a wave like like never seen before. So it's really easy to mistake to to think that like oh we have it all figured out right now because of that yeah um and i think i I really i don't want to sound like a you know too cynical about this but i really think that there's a big gap between our current growth and our strategic vision and i think our strategic vision is really lagging behind it's part of the reason why i started this podcast because i wanted to talk to smart people to try to figure this thing out the thing is is you have to go back to the beginning and do what i would call building your politics part of the problem right now is that the way that we communicate on the left is the number one tactic, the number one way that we interact is with sort of 
these arguments of I can't believe you don't already know that, right? Like if you go in these online spaces in particular, but also in, in some of the physical spaces, you know, the assumption is that every moral question is already easy, that all good people already know what you're, how you're supposed to feel. And because you so rarely actually have to like argue with people who don't agree with you, you never get to the point where you go down to the basics and say, this is what I think. This is what I believe. This is what I think should happen. And here's how I'm going to go about getting it. Uh, and there's no alternative to doing that. You as a thinking human being have to be able to articulate your political values, where they come from, why they're correct, why you know the right thing to do, and how you're going to go about doing it. And I would I tell this to younger political people all the time. The first step is to ask yourself, why do I believe what I believe? Number one, like what is the actual source of my political commitments? And then how can I build the world where those political commitments get put into place? How can I actually do the hard work of getting to the world that I say that I want? Because you actually have to have a theory, right? A, a moral political commitment without a political theory is useless. It doesn't matter if you can tell me what kind of world you want. If you don't have a compelling, plausible argument to be made for, this is how we get from A to B. Yeah, yeah. That, I've, I've really resonated with some of your blog, your, your late blog posts, uh, talking about uh, the, the need for having an, an explicit and well-thought-out uh, theory of social change. And that I mean, and I think I think that's you know I think that's really what I was getting at when I talked about this gap between the growth of our movements and the sort of like uh, political and strategic capacities. I think it really is that lack of an explicit discussion about a, 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 what is the theory of social change, and assuming that protesting and getting people together has this implicit sort of ready-made, built-in theory of social change. I think has been you know proven demonstrably false and we need to have more of these discussions and you know to, to be optimistic i think this is happening more i really do i owe that to jacob and i owe that to dsa i owe that to bernie sanders i owe that to uh, a lot of this other activist culture that's that's come up um i think that the dsa you know the swelling in the dsa ranks is dope and i tell people i mean i'm not a dsa member for uh, you know, not very interesting reasons, but uh, I think it's great that people are joining the organization. Um, you'd like to hear what the plan is sooner right. or later. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I came out of a, a much smaller uh, a socialist organization some years ago, and I have some baggage coming from that. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly excited about DSA's growth. And, and, I mean, what we need now more than anything is we need to create more socialists, new socialists, new educated you know, active socialists. Uh, but, but, you know, Hey, as I've been, I've, I've been saying this much more and more recently, there are going to be some growing pains and there's good, yeah. there's going to be something of a reckoning coming very soon. And we need to be prepared for that. And the only way to be prepared for that is to have these discussions and, and, and talk about these things openly. And that, that requires, uh, 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 opening yourself to up to a bit of risk because what you talked about is, uh, the, the problem of echo chambers, yeah. Right. And, and I got to tell you, you know, some of the most the, the fragilest of egos that I've ever encountered in some senses are, are campus radicals. And, and it's because they've sort of they have this sort of uh, status. They've built a personal brand for themselves. They're used to only talking to people who absolutely agree with them. Uh, they don't know how to open it up and let new people into the movement. Um, right. I think that's a big problem right now. I mean, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, but again, like, it gets back to the fact that, like, you have to assume that your first purpose is to reach out to people who don't already agree. And unfortunately, 
there's this sense among a lot of people that those who don't already agree are like not worthy of being convinced, right? And it's just like, you know, there's again, there's no alternative. What's the theory of political change? Right. Like you're gonna fucking roll your eyes at people so often that they finally say, I guess I'll get on board with your program. No. <laughs> You have to be able to articulate to people a self-interested reason for them to join your political party. It's not Ayn Rand stuff, okay? Like, you know, ethical egoism, Ayn Rand stuff is like, you know, you have to be selfish in terms of favoring your own interests, specifically against the interests of others. But in terms of appealing to the self-interest of people in order to get them on your political program, that is straight out of Marx. You can, you know, you can find the quotes, black letter Marxism is, says people join political movements out of their own self-interest. And so you have to be willing to go to someone who is not like you, who doesn't talk the way that you do, who doesn't like the same music that you do, and who might actually believe some pretty ugly shit. And you tell them, here's why it's in your best interest to join our program, because there's no alternative. Right on. It seems like uh, opening ourselves up in this moment is is important now more than ever. And that's why I'm, you know, that's why I'm encouraged. You know, I, I I'm talking. You know, I, some, if some of you l- listeners are campus activists and you're doing the right things, uh, you know, hey, kudos. It's not easy out there. Uh, I know a lot of people are trying new things and opening opening themselves up to new strategies. Um, I want to end on the this sort of macho left theme that I'm kind of criticizing uh, on this week's show. One of the more troubling, one of the more troubling aspects of the culture warrior macho left is this uh, notion that you know we need to sort of prepare ourselves for this imminent confrontation. It's always sort of like violent and and that's and that sort of thing. And what what concerns me is that I, I just don't think that this is you know that that overt open violence is really a terrain that we can win on. Because it seems to me that the idea is just like you said, right? Rather than talking to people with whom we disagree, rather than uh, trying to dialogue and include people who may have some backwards ideas, that we ultimately need to confront them in this really muscular, macho sort of way. So the, the two, I mean, it seems like a little bit of a departure here with this question, but the two are intimately related, wouldn't you say, in terms of how that goes? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the again, like, look, um, I don't mean to psychoanalyze people. But it is fair to say that a fair portion of the people who get attracted to left-wing politics are people who have felt uh, like they are outsiders in some sense, like who haven't felt like they have a particular sort of – they don't come from a place of feeling like they are within the mainstream. And that's great. I think that's what we want. I also think that that tends to – bring us a lot of people who carry around a lot of baggage and part of that baggage is the desire to be kind of conventionally masculine and powerful and a lot of guys kind of channel that into their political rage and say this is going to be my uh my way to sort of finally be the tough guy and i I get that on a human level but it just doesn't make sense from a strategic point of view this 21st century america is not 1917 russia it's not uh, Cuba in the 1950s, right? The material conditions are different. The federal government has satellites that can read your T-shirt from space. Okay? <laughs> the federal government has... Uh, you can't punch that satellite? You can't punch the satellite. You can't punch a predator drone. You can try and punch a cop in, uh, you know, uh, in body armor that's made with, like, the shit that was, like, in the space shuttle if you want. Right. But... 
the relative the the ability of regular people to mount meaningful resistance to establishment governments, particularly in the developed world, right, uh, has changed. And also, the fact of the matter is that for all the problems with the United States, many people in this country, even good, decent people who want change, have really bought into the establishment narrative and are not going to get on board with your revolution. So it's time to put that fantasy aside. I get it. You know, things are so bad, it's natural to want to gravitate towards a real break in violence or whatever. But uh, I, I'm afraid I have bad news. You are never going to actually get to, like, fire a gun to defeat capitalism. And if you try to do it, you'll be dead very quickly. That's reality. That's so correct. Uh, last week, I uh, had uh, Matt Carp on the show, and, and you know, we, we talked about slavery and odd historical, you know, occurrences and weird figures from the South. But there was a really important nugget there in terms of our contemporary political moment, which is that uh, he argues these sort of like linear narratives that d- lead directly from slavery to the current uh, sort of racial politics of America are really grounded in a certain kind of hopelessness. Right. right, because if if and it was because like ah oh, shit, man, racism has always been with us, and it probably always will be. So I might as well just be the most radical motherfucker in the room, you know, because fuck the world, you know. It's like so in that way that that kind of ultra leftism is spawned by a sense of hopelessness and a feeling that things can't change, you know. So it's 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 kind of, you really have to look at it that way. And as soon as you start seeing, so next time you're in a political meeting and somebody stands up and urges everybody to the barricades. Just understand that person is probably the 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 least convinced person in the room when it comes to right. belief that we can actually win, which is really counterintuitive, but it's important, I think, to center that. It really comes from a place of, of hopelessness, and I get it. It often seems hopeless, but uh, you know, uh, I think we can win this thing. I might I might be deluded, but I do. Well, that's a great note to go out on. Uh, thanks so much, Freddie, for joining us. Uh, everybody, check out his blog, uh, his Anova blog. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back on the show to talk more about education policy and, and in some of the research that you've done. But thanks for talking to us about uh, the macho left, and you've given us a lot of things to think about. All right, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. Take care. And that's it for part two of this week's episode. Join us again next week for part three, where I talk with Angela Nagel, about the alt-right and the alt-light and their role in the Berkeley skirmish and what we ought to do about it. One final reminder, if you're still listening, I really appreciate all of your support. Head on over to patreon.com and throw me some bones so I can keep this little project going. That's www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Become a subscriber. I'm going to have some subscriber-only content on there very soon, and you're not going to want to miss it. Support the show and get a little bonus present. In the meantime, and it's not even Christmas. Once again, thanks everybody. We'll see you next week. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this new crazy mother...